Welcome to Independent Living Movement Ireland's podcast, Conversations About Activism and Change, where disabled activists talk about their experiences and their views on building a disability rights movement in the 21st century. For our second podcast, recorded on the 6th of May 2020, we are joined by Eileen Daly. When I was a young child, I started off um, going to my local primary school at five year five and I was the only disabled child and subsequently the only wheelchair user and the only disabled child that I'm aware of at that time, even though undoubtedly I'm sure there were many more, just they didn't didn't use wheelchairs. Um, And that that was um, fine, I suppose, for the first year so in junior infants and then I started to feel different and I, I went to an all-girls school and some of the girls they wouldn't make any effort to include me I felt I felt excluded I guess and and it was particularly difficult in the, at lunchtime and the teachers didn't know how to manage or cope with it or to bring um difference and diversity into the conversation so at 10 years of age I spoke to my parents and I made the the decision which they supported a special school special education that began my journey um, in for the next three years and all in all I have to say it was a very positive experience because I was very fortunate that I wasn't taught by a teacher who had no expectations of um, a disabled child and um, she challenged me and pushed me and sometimes gave me uh, in you know did let me away with anything which is very good and I um, I followed the standard curriculum um, and that enabled me then to proceed three years later into secondary school. From a social perspective and in terms of making friends, um, I can safely say that was the start of my journey into activism, even though at the time I wouldn't have named it as such. Um, But it was, and I was very, very good friends, some of whom I'm still in touch with today. Um, and I also saw the, the, I suppose, the inequalities that existed within the system itself. Children with more severe impairments, they wouldn't have been challenged and supported as much as someone that was academic, academically able. And it became very clear to everyone, even the teachers that weren't teaching me that I was able so everyone got behind me but the others the other pupils weren't that fortunate and I do think that if they had been challenged appropriately the same in the same way that I was some of them may have a very different future now or a very different experience now a very different life now something and the other thing is I suppose when I was there, I, you know, I was able to access all the, the services like the physiotherapy and would have been the main one. And 
that was um, all right, I guess, because my because academically I didn't lose out or I didn't um, suffer. But what was very interesting was that because I was within the school, I was actually disadvantaged because what used to happen was if I had my slot, my appointment time after class, um, and a child and parents came in from the outside, they always got priority over me. And um, some, um, I suppose physically, my mobility deteriorated in a way that it shouldn't have because it had nothing to do with my disability. It was just, uh, it was just because I wasn't exercising enough in the normal run of the mill way, the way I would have done every day at home, trying to keep up with my siblings and my peers, you know, trying, you know, doing all the normal everyday stuff that you would do. But I wasn't doing that now. I was just doing all the normal routine physio stuff. And I wasn't even doing that as much as I should as I should have been. So contrary contrary to what people might assume, it didn't do my physical mobility and my confidence in that area any good because I was just it feels like I was put into a straitjacket. You know, because a lot of what I did before that was just it was part of everyday life. It wasn't seen as a routine of physio or whatever. It was just so while well, some of it was, you know, this was a kind of a program, a lot of it wasn't. So I, I have said this before. So sometimes I think that while physio is very important for everyone throughout their lives, if you have an injury or whatever, that sometimes the, the standard everyday interactions where people rough and tumble as kids and play sport, if that's your interest, if you're not, it's a, that's your choice. But I think my point is trying to keep everything as standardised and as mainstream as possible serves everyone, including disabled people themselves, if that makes sense. And it proves that medicalising things isn't always, is never the best option, if you know what I'm trying to say. And I think it builds up fear that shouldn't be there. In sixth class, um, I, I, it became very clear to me uh, um, that I had to change again and move back into the mainstream because I wasn't going to be served in the way that I wanted to. It wasn't going to meet my, my 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 needs and I address my goals and ambitions. I always wanted to do exams and have a job and do all those everyday uh, things that that all teenagers want to do and all young people want to do. Um, and so I went back to my local secondary school and first year to third year were particularly in difficult in terms of making friends and all that kind of stuff but academically I I was able to keep up and hold on my own I wasn't top of the class by any means and everything but I was your average student 
grand and spent lots of hours doing homework and stuff. And then um, at the end of third year, as is still standard practice at second level, we all students, I didn't do TY. They didn't have the TY option in school and I think I would have liked it if I had done it. But, um, so it was about to go into fifth year and we had to do the DATS test, D-A-T-S um, test, and that's a, an aptitude test. And the purpose of it is to help someone, someone determine their strengths and weaknesses in various subjects, to help a young person to identify their chosen career path. So that test is taught, your aptitude is tested in a number of areas and it's timed. So for somebody with a physical um, impairment as a disabled teenager, it was automatically going to pose problems for me because I just couldn't manage the speed. And it was caused dexterity issues. And at that time, there were no SNAs um, available. So, um, the guidance counselor didn't give any of the class any real um, understanding or insight as to what the purpose of it was. And she certainly didn't take any of us to speak to us one to one. So, I went into a big hole with everyone else, sat at the back of the hole, did the test, and it was extremely distressing and upsetting because I just couldn't keep up. And some of it I couldn't actually do it because my spatial awareness is very, very poor. Um, um, and I couldn't, and it was absolutely awful. So I, I was very, very angry and I, when the results came back, everyone was getting this, we returned to them and I wasn't. So I went into the guidance office and we had um, a heated exchange and I told her that, um, that I knew the results were back and I wanted to see them and she didn't want to give them to me and I told her that, well, I knew that I wasn't, uh, stupid. I'm. I remember my words that she said. I said to her, "I may look deformed, but I'm not." She said, "I never said you were deformed." I said, "Yeah, well, that's what you might be thinking." And she said, "She, she said, yeah, don't." So anyway, we had a um. He said, "So I um." Then she gave me the results, and as predicted, they were very. They were not. Uh, um, good, as I had known, and so I, in that moment, somewhere in the back of my mind, I made a decision that I was going to study and do something about this so that I could try and ensure that other people didn't have to have the same experience and that we could create a system that would be flexible to people's needs and it definitely left a lasting impression that has shaped my my life and my career to, to date. And I suppose just to go back for a minute, I did my junior search the year before, 
and I sat in the large exam hall, the same as all the other students. And generally, I'll have to say it was a positive experience in the sense that I, I wasn't treated any differently and everything went smoothly. And um, But I always knew that I wouldn't do as well as I could have done because I couldn't physically write quickly enough. Uh, so what I'm saying is I didn't get any reasonable accommodations for my junior sir. But nonetheless, I, I did very well. I got uh, B's and C's, but I would have done that. I love that had I had a slide and been on my own individual centre. So for leaving search, and thankfully I didn't even have to ask. The school went and they or lays with the department, and and I I was one of the first people to be granted reasonable accommodations for the leaving search back in 1994, and it was an extremely positive experience. Um, and it, they also allowed me, for the mocks, I also dictated um, all my answers. That was extremely positive. Well. They literally had teachers on a, on a rota scribing uh, all my plans for me. So thankfully, my, my um, leaving cert went very well, but just to say that the CEO, filling out the CEO form was an interesting process. At that time, the, it wasn't online, it was all paper-based. And I, at that time, I had put down arts in UCC as my first choice. And I also went to visit the campus in UCC. And it was nothing like it is now, they have excellent supports and services there, as they should have. Remember, they really do have a very um, high standard service there now, but it wasn't developed at that time. And the disability officer or access officer, I don't remember the title that was used at the time, she basically told me that I would have hope of getting the points to get into college and I should go to Rutland Park. <laughs> and I said, I basically told her, no, I don't think so. I want to try. But anyway, in the meantime, I went off and I tried to uh, apply to Rosalind Park and I did there. Then I was basically going to do a pre-university access course. But um, as it transpired, thankfully, um, but that didn't happen. What happened was my mother, and came up with the idea that I should fill in the change of mind form and apply to UCD and because the facilities and the um, opportunities available to me would be greater in Dublin and it was a very wise decision and that's what led me then uh, to apply for UCD and uh, that was my for, for, for first preference on the and the rest, um, I suppose, history. I started um, as social science in UCD in 1994. But I'll just go backtrack for a minute. Um, I should mention that prior to going to 
fixture. You know, there's a lot of debate and discussion about my future. And I was absolutely determined to go to college. No one was going to stop me. But a very, very strong memory and one that really, I suppose, forced me to become very determined with an interaction, a conversation I had with someone from the inner being, inner being. And he was a placement officer. And he basically came onto my home to have a chat with me about my future. And he basically told me that I wouldn't have a hope of going to college or should mine should I just work in somewhere like Jacob's biscuit factory. You know, I won't repeat the expletives that I used and th that day. But um and then a few months later when I was taking a break one evening uh, from the study I saw and um, that in from the margins was going to be broadcast and that was the um, documentary that was Donald Tulin was the host and he be, and they spoke about the emergence of the independent living movement in Ireland and Martin and Arslan, Joe and all the founders um, were interviewed and at that moment I guess I made up my mind that's what I was going to do, that's how I was going to go to college and that paved the, the, way, the way for all my future decisions and actions. Then I made uh, initiated contact with CIL and with Martin and after my leaving search when the, the results came out and it was confirmed that I had a place in UCD based on the top my points and then we got um, working on getting a package together but it's just interesting to note that I had been in, in discussions with and campaigning um, with the, the health board at the time and the NRB and of course they had declined my, my request so I basically told them that I was going to the European Court for Human Rights <laughs> and that and I would chain myself to, to railings and no one could, no one could try and stop me um, but on a, on a more serious note, I do think it's worth to mention that I had had a very serious conversation with my mother and she she knew I was serious and I told her that basically that if I wasn't supported in the, to go to college that basically I was a, there was a blood on their hands because there was no way I was going to a day centre. And she t took me seriously, she did. She actually believed me and she then 100% got behind me and supported me. So um, that was the beginning of my journey. There was a lot of the negotiations with Martin and other people in relation to getting me the funding that, that I needed to, to make the transition from Cork to Dublin. I, Everyone assumed I'd go back, but I was in the open hell of 
and ran, 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 dragging me back. So yeah. When I graduated, I was determined that I wasn't going to work in this multi-sector because I wanted to try something else. Mm-hmm. But I was unemployed for a year and I eventually fell into it and I started off um, on the CE scheme in the Irish Military Association and eventually progressed into the room where I, am t- uh, I reckon today with, which is basically supporting um, young people and adults, some of them who identify as disabled, many of them don't. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess my so uh, my life experience today has greatly influenced my education and employment um, journey. Um, in, in terms of, I mean, obviously you've given us a huge amount of information there and, and your pathway, not only to the employment where you are now, but obviously different stages in your education. And, and like anyone's, you know, lifelong learning, it's not a straight path at all, of course. No, no. You mentioned there are two bits that might, might, might uh, kind of nicely dovetail into the next question. You obviously mentioned your involvement in student politics. Mm. You might be interested to explore a bit. And you obviously mentioned Martin Nocton. And mm. uh, so was there a specific time where you realised I'm an activist or I want to be an activist? When was that eureka moment or did it just gently happen? Um, no, it gently happened. I mean, when I left, um, I always had an interest in activism and politics, and I got involved in the UCD Student Union. And then when I, uh, so I became very involved in student politics and, you know, speaking for the rights and advocating for the rights of disabled students and to make sure their voice was heard within the wider student population and also to make sure they had equal access to all other societies, etc. Not just... So, and then when I, when I graduated, I suppose, I very much, I, you know, I was finding my feet, you know. When you're in university and you're involved in student life, you become immersed in it. Mm-hmm. So when I left, I was at sea. So I automatically gravitated towards CIL as it was at the time because um, they were my peers and I related to everyone's um, experience and um, everyone was very welcoming. You know, it was like there was never a, an issue. And so it was all the summer that I felt um, included. So I, I it was a, a, an natural fit and because I think uh, I've always been very passionate about you know human rights and you know equal uh, equal rights for everyone no matter who you are it was a natural fit for me um, so it happened naturally there wasn't a eureka moment per se Fantastic. And, you know, was there a group of, you mentioned people in CIL, uh, is there particular people or is there a person that you want yeah. to get to say that was a, a guide for you on that journey? As you... Oh, there were um, many people, um, but one I suppose would, um, Martin would be the, the, the one that would come to mind at first because 
it was because of Martin's drive and indeed all the boundaries of of the movement in Ireland that I am, you know, that I'm here. So, but it was Martin that I first met and he was the one in that, you know, made sure that all the doors were cut open when other people were trying to close them. Like the inner, the mainstream, you know, access to higher education, further and higher education wasn't in easy or common for disabled people in the in the early 90s the way it is now. Now thankfully it's getting easier. We have a way to go and there are issues. But um it you know it wasn't as common as it is now. So he helped push the doors open for me and then of course there's um you know everyone Florence Jyoti Mooney, Eugene Callan, and John Doyle, who'd been a very, very good friend of mine. And all those, all those friends and comrades and allies mm -hmm. were, were instrumental. And they weren't just my peers, they were my friends. They were people we went out with, they were people you picked up the phone to. And it wasn't always about activism mm. as a normal everyday stuff. You really love life. How 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 you were so right today because you drank you know all the usual stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it wasn't all serious. Be I'm, great fun. I'm glad because we don't want to be discouraged. You don't want to be discouraged on even that it's always the hard slog that there aren't you know wonderful relationships, you know, and peer support yeah, and all that as well. Great, great fun. And just, I mean, in, in terms of... You have of, to have. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. In, in terms of your activism, like you, you, you mentioned there about where you're at in terms of paid employment. Um, is that something that when you're working nine to five that you can't build your activism into? Or is what fires you as an activist, can you bring that into your working environment? Yes, thankfully I can. Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate in that way. Um, and that's... I think that's why I'm still in the work I'm in, it's one of the main reasons because my employers, I've always been open with them and they know I'm very, very involved and very, very active. And they know, you know, it's very important to me. It's core to who, who I am. And they don't have a problem with it. And sometimes, and I've been told openly, and I don't have a problem with it either, that it's to their advantage to have somebody with a lived experience there and um, you know uh, um, and I in the job that I'm working with supporting students, adults, teenagers, adults, teachers and management um, it is very important to have the voice of the living experience there but not only for, so it's a combination of being respected for your personal experience, your lived experience, but also that you're a professional in your own right and that you have, like any else, I would hope many strengths to your bow, but the, the ability to be able to relate to people at many different levels, I think is important. But yeah, certainly it's something that I'm very uh, privileged to be able to bring um, into my 
behind and then people are quite proud of it so I'm very lucky. And you, you, you've kind of touched on it there obviously in your professional environment you're able to influence people are there key people within the education sphere or outside the education sphere that you think um, as a disabled woman, as an activist, as a member of the independent living movement, that you can bring in and influence other spaces that you think uh, that you you currently can you you you're involved in that maybe we we as a collective mm. could think more about. Well, yeah, as you're aware, Jamie, and I'm involved because ILMI support me in this. I'm involved with the National Council for Special Education, and I was um, appointed onto that. Um, in March 2019, by the NDA, uh, and I was a little bit um, um, uncertain as to whether to accept it or not because it's very political, and I wanted to make sure that I brought my own agenda and then that I was representing the voice of the collective. The disabled community, not just people with physical and sensory disability, but class impairment, which I think is usually important. But that I was representing everyone and also being true to myself. Um, and I'm very much advocating for an inclusive approach. And that doesn't mean that people with individual needs can't be addressed, they have to be addressed in order for it to be successful. But it needs to be done in, a, in an inclusive manner and it's slow work but I would like to think that you know by being there that my voice and the voice of others who will come after me will make a difference. I think it's absolutely crucial that as disabled people we work at all levels from the ground up. And it's only by being at the table with everyone as equals that we can really influence change. And it's not about doing it on your own, mm -hmm. it's about doing it in partnership and planting seeds and respecting everybody's diverse views and opinions. Do you think, Eileen, I mean, that you bring an extra special, you know, gravitas to that role? You're bringing the lived experience, but as a professional within the education system, that, you know, that your voice is even stronger. And as you say, you've got the collective beat behind that as well. Yeah, well, I would hope so. I mean, obviously, I can't break confidentiality, but I have, course, made, yeah, yeah. I have made some very strong points, and I have to take a board, for, even from an ethical perspective, you know what I mean? And um, so, yeah, I think because, you know, while there are times that people might be able to say, oh, nobody told us that, that we needed to do an access audit of a building before we agreed to a premises or whatever. But, you know, I was very, I, you know, that's something that I feel very strongly about. I'm not just access for people with mobility and physical. Uh, disabilities but also people with you know who are on the autism spectrum and all thing. That's one thing about my 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 role, my professional role is that thankfully I've had the opportunity to learn from other peers and professionals across different fields. So it's been yeah, it's an ever evolving uh, situation. Um, 
obviously, Eileen, over the years and, you know, between student politics and the independent living movement, you've been involved in many, many different campaigns. But was there something that you were part of as a collective or individually where you went, this is something where, where change really happened? You know, it might have been an individual moment or something that evolved over time. Is there something that you think you could say that you felt change actually happened at that point? Well, I can't take credit for it because I wasn't at the forefront because I was after surgery at the time, so I wasn't, um, I was recovering, but it, it definitely the a moment I'm most proud of, even though I wasn't directly involved because I couldn't be, was the time that where we as a collective and as a community, um, you know, averted the pay cuts for the PA service in 2012. That is the one that will always kind of in my memory and it was I think one of the first times that I felt that we were being taken seriously and that we were forced to be reckoned with. Excellent, excellent. And so, yeah. And I'm sure there's people who who are a part of it. Uh, the discussion today might 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 amplify in that later on, which is which is great. <laughs> Just a couple of more questions, Eileen, and I do appreciate your time, and for, I also appreciate the patience of, of of people who are in. As I I want to use Des's quote here from from last week. In the series of interviews we're organising, no one has been placed on a pedestal that they have all the answers. And I know that's not your approach either today, but it is really, really useful for people who've had that long-standing involvement to be able to explore their particular viewpoints and things that have worked. And if things haven't worked, then that's fair enough as well, because then we as a collective can learn from them and move forward. So I'm now going to move into kind of some specific, two specific questions that are very much linked. What do you think are the main challenges from your perspective for the disability rights movement in Ireland? And if you identify those challenges, what do we need to do about them as a collective? So I think, personally, I think that we can't work in isolation anymore, that we have to work cross impairments, that it's not good enough to just think about ourselves, and that, you know, we all have to, we don't always have to agree, because that's not the way human nature or politics or activism work, but we have to be respectful and stop trying to you know, look after myself only and, you know, learn from each other and plan strategically. Um, and we, uh, you know, we have to, um, I think, the ILMI uh, has to continue to make sure that we are, you know, as a TPO, so that disabled people's voices are, you know, constantly um, at the table and that we are challenged in the same way that anybody else was and that we continue to, to, to do that. So the challenge for the future is to, I think, to, I think uh, I'm old now, so I need to uh, be open to learning from the ideas of the younger generation because it, the world we live in is constantly evolving and I think, you know, um, we need to be open to all these different ways of doing things and I think the pandemic in itself um, will bring new challenges. We are undoubtedly going to face a global recession so we are going to be challenged again 
to make sure that our voices are heard and our requirements are addressed. And in, not in a traditional way, but in here, we must keep the rights based focus on the agenda. And um, I just thought it was very interesting and the interesting in one sense and disturbing in another that we are still looking and making sure that the, you know that disabled people's uh, voices and interests aren't are heard in in a, in a pandemic. I I suppose to make sure that um, our our lives and our experiences need to have equal value to every other other citizen and it was kind of not surprising but frightening to see that there are many people out there that do not value our lives as, as equals to the able-bodied population and that is worrying um, so I think that's something we have to continually challenge you, you've mentioned it there, and, and, and I do appreciate you're, you're, you're grilled as it is. <laughs> I'm, giving your, I'm giving your time, but no, it is. It's tough. Like I mean, you're on the spot. You're, 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 you've been very generous with your time. You're sharing your wisdom and your experience, and I really appreciate that. And as always, Eileen, you're a fantastic company in that process. And uh -huh. Just very quickly, the main challenge, as you say, for a DPO, really is 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 been cross impairment. Just from your perspective, mm -hmm. how how can we go about building that to be be truly representative? Well, I think to go back to basics, I think the, um, people with different environments have to make sure you have to make sure that people feel safe to talk and to share their uh, experiences and that their voice, voices are heard. And then they equally have to be open to hearing what we have to to say. But it's about, um, I suppose, we, helping people to, to realise that we're not working against each other, we're working together. I think historically in Ireland it's always been seen that we're working against each other, fighting for what we can get and I think we have to change that, that mindset and I think you know just mentioned very quickly the area of you know, emotional distress and the psychosocial model. Um, uh, uh, we had a conversation yesterday when we were preparing for tonight, and I was thinking of a lot of conversations. And I, you know, fully, uh, I think that what we we're talking about is very interesting. I think we need, I would strongly be supportive of. It, that it's time to move away from the label of mental health, move away from that paradigm, from that shift, and shift it towards we all go through periods of emotional distress from one reason or another, and that's something that I would be very in interested in because, because if you look at it through that lens, we every human being, no matter who you are goes through challenging times and some people may choose to identify as disabled and some may not. That is their choice. 
but I think, you know, I think it's worth exploring the conversation um, and I think a move away from it's time to challenge psychiatry and to move away from it if that's what people want. Now, I'm not saying that that is the place for my medication. And I think either we have to be open to a number of different ways of doing things. And that brings us to the end of podcast two in conversations about activism and change. Make sure to listen to our other podcasts by visiting www.ilmi.ie to find out more about our work. Sign up for our e-bulletin by emailing info at ilmi.ie or follow us on Twitter at ILM Ireland or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ILM Ireland.